Pray again here for just a second. Father, truth is spiritually apprehended. We can hear facts, we can hear information, yet it doesn't mean that it affects what we think within our souls or minds in such a way that it transforms or changes what we do. And Lord, we are in desperate need of transformation. And so we ask that your spirit is present this morning to make truth real to our hearts, our minds, our souls, so that, Lord, it produces fruit, that it produces effect in how we think and in how we live. We ask that you would honor yourself this morning by changing us by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me start with an illustration of a story Within a story, uh, in the Old Testament, there's a story being told, and within that story, a story is told, and the story goes like this. There are two men within the same city. One is very wealthy and one is very poor. The very wealthy one, this is back in the day, wealth was measured by herds and flocks. He's got lots of herds and flocks. The other guy, though, he's poor. He's so poor he has one little lamb. That's it. Now, To him, though, that lamb is everything. And in fact, it's not so much an animal in his family, it's more like a member of the family. And one day, the wealthy man has a visitor, a guest arrives. And of course, in the Middle East, when you have guests, you you put on the ritz for them, you put out your best. But rather than go to his own herds or flocks for an animal for the feast, he steals the lamb that belongs to that other poor neighbor. He slaughters it for the feast for his visitor. Well, when this story is being told, the second man hearing the story, as he hears about the poor man's lone soul sheep being stolen, he's outraged. And he says, the man that did that should die. And the Hebrew idioms, you know, you you miss this in the English translations. The Hebrew idiom is, he's a son of death. Uh, Death is all this guy gets. He's a son of death. You know, this is a story from 2 Samuel 12, and the person telling the story was God's prophet Nathan. And the guy hearing the story is King David. And, of course, God was using Nathan to make a point to David, and it was this, David, you are the man. David, this story is all about you and what you have done. Because if you remember the story... King David had taken the lone lamb, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of David's faithful, loyal followers. He had taken her from Uriah, and then to cover up his sin, he had murdered Uriah the Hittite by commanding that when Uriah was in the battle, he was to be put in the worst place of the Ammonite enemy, and the others were to draw away from him. So that David used the Ammonites to murder Uriah, but murder it was nonetheless. In the fictional account, David's outraged because someone had stolen another person's animal. And yet David had stolen another man's wife and then covered up the sin through murder. David said in the fictional story, the man who stole the sheep deserved to die. And under the law of Moses, which David lived... David deserved to die two times over because both adultery and murder was subject to capital punishment under the law of Moses. Now God, in a sense, commuted David's sentence because David doesn't die. But the son conceived with Bathsheba, that son dies. 
And then God also says this to David, because you have done this thing, I've given you everything, would have given you anything else you wanted, because you've done this wickedness, the sword, the element of death, is going to be within your family. And so though David lives, he doesn't die, the truth is the element of death is sown into his family. And death repeats itself over and over and over again because of one sin that leads to another and the death it brings. And that's our introduction this morning to the sixth of the ten words or the ten commandments. This is the second related to the way we treat each other. And as a very brief reminder, remember the ten commandments or the ten words, literally in the Hebrew, this was the introduction, as it were, to the covenant, to the fuller, broader covenant God made with the nation of Israel there at Mount Sinai through Moses. And we've said, though we don't live under the law of Moses today, that old covenant has been replaced by the new covenant, yet the moral commands within those ten words, they were true before the law, they're true under the law, and they're true now in the new covenant day in which we live, in which obeying God is the way we show Him that we love Him. So remember as we go through these, we're not going over the ten words as if we could keep the commandments in some way that gives us goodness before God. There's no thought of that. When Jesus died on the cross, it says that the commandments that were against us were nailed to the cross with Him. We've died in Christ. We've risen with Christ. We're new creatures under a new covenant. But those, those moral realities that were seen in the law and the ten words, they remain in effect today. So today's the sixth word. By the way, frankly, this is a heavy message. This is not a light fuzzy, warm fuzzy message. This is a heavy message. It's about murder and death. And so sort of hang that on, put that in perspective, and there is hope certainly at the end. We know that as Christians. So the text, Exodus 20 verse 13, says very briefly, simply in the New American Standard, you shall not murder. You know, you've gone from lengthy commands like about the Sabbath or idols, but now, man, you get down to these do nots, you shall not. They're short. So in the English, you shall not murder. In the Hebrew, this is even more brief. It's just two words in the Hebrew. Lo ratzak. Don't murder. If you use an older English translation, if you use the King James or the American Standard, your translation may say, you shall not kill. And that's a little problematic because the way we use English today, kill is pretty broad and this command is actually very narrow. So the Hebrew word ratzak means literally murder in English. It's used secondarily if someone unintentionally but through their own negligence also killed someone. But this has to do with murder very specifically, not kill. So if you use an older translation that says kill, remind yourself this isn't kill broadly, this is murder very narrowly and specifically. So. This prohibits one person or persons from taking away another innocent person's life. It also means, secondarily, death through negligence. What this does not prohibit, and that we need to be clear on this, this does not prohibit capital punishment. This does not prohibit killing in self-defense. This does not prohibit killing in war. This does not prohibit killing animals. That's not the way the Hebrew word is used. This is very narrow and it's very specific. 
Now, we are not to take away from someone else a life that does not belong to us. There's many reasons. I'll just mention two on the front end here. The first is that the individual has a right to their own life. It's theirs. And so we're not free to simply take what belongs to someone else. And by the way, as you look at the ten words, you'll see generally that there's a clear sense in which each commandment can be rendered down to this, that we don't take something that doesn't belong to us. You remember the original temptation in the garden? Eve is tempted to take something that was forbidden her. And that's sort of the essence of all sin. The ten words, every one of them has to do with taking something God tells us isn't ours to take. This is taking a life from someone. It's theirs. It's not ours. It's not a prerogative to take it. The second reason, though, is because the individual is made in the image of God. So that when we murder another individual, we are murdering a divine image bearer. We not only don't have a right to take another person's life away, we don't have the right before God to take away one of our fellow divine image bearers. Leland Riken says it this way in his book, Written in Stone, God has put his stamp on every one of us the way a great artist signs his name to a work of art. Therefore, to damage a life is to deface one of God's masterpieces. Now he quotes Calvin here saying, Our neighbor bears the image of God. To use him, abuse him, or misuse him is to do violence to the person of God who images himself in every human soul. Murder is a sin against God. It's a crime against the individual. And it's also a crime against humanity because the murderer has taken someone out of their family, their culture, their city, their society, and the contributions they may have made to them. This command, as all the ten are, is reiterated in Deuteronomy 5. Very clear in the Old, Old Testament, do not murder, do not take another person's life. Now, when you get to Jesus and the New Testament, you see this command affirmed again and then heightened. So if you remember from the Synoptic Gospels the story about the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, Good Master, what good thing should I do to be saved, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, Well, keep the commands. And among the others, he reiterates, Do not murder. Among the other sins, do not murder, he says, reiterating this sixth word. Now, if you're like me, when I'm reading through the Ten Commandments, or if I'm in the the Gospels, and it says, do not murder, I'm feeling fairly safe. So if you say, uh, you know, don't put up other idols, I'm thinking, well, yeah, make idols, yeah. You know, if you say, use your time the way God wants you to, and I'm thinking, well, yeah, you know, sometimes I don't do that either. I get to murder, I'm safe, right? I would never murder anyone. And I'm sure all of us sitting here this morning, we say, yeah, I would never murder anyone. But, but of course, we would. And Jesus says, we, we do. So... When you move to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, he moves from the exterior action or act of murder into the heart and mind and says, the sin of murder doesn't start preformed in the action. No, it's taking place already in our hearts, our minds, and our souls. So in Matthew 5, this is a passage Kent taught on, gosh, it's probably been a year or two ago. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says... You have heard the ancients were told, don't commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. So 
It's committing the act. It's the action itself. But here Jesus says, I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. In other words, anger in our hearts. If we were to be taken into God's court, God says guilty. Guilty of what? Guilty of murder. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell, the ultimate death sentence. So Jesus says on one hand, yes, that was the command, but I'm telling you something greater. It's just not the actions of your hands. Murder, the spirit of death and murder, starts in our hearts, our minds, and our souls. And if murder doesn't start in our hearts, our minds, and our souls, we'll never get to the action. But that's where it's all bred, like all the other sins. It's a sin in our mind before it's a sin in our actions. You see the same thing in Mark 7.21. Jesus says there, and this is the point, from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, and adulteries. So Jesus says, guys, it's not just an issue about outward actions. It's about what's going on in your own mind. And are you entertaining the spirit, the attitude, the idea of murder in the way you're thinking about other people? You know, God gets angry, by the way, in a way that's appropriate. Usually, almost always, we get anger wrong. But God does say in Ephesians 4, be angry, but don't sin. This doesn't mean it's impossible for a human to get angry and have it not right. Sometimes anger is appropriate, anger over the right thing for the right reason. It's just that most of the time, as Jesus is saying here, Our anger is not righteous anger against someone else. We're sort of stoking the fuel of bitterness and unforgiveness and anger towards someone else Christ has died for. That's the issue. Last, 1 John 3.15, John says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. So when I see the issue of murder written in this context, then I say, well, you know, now this command strikes pretty close to home. When I hate my brother, when I'm embittered against the spouse sitting next to me at church on Sunday morning, or the people that I pray for when in front of others but secretly harbor unforgiveness towards otherwise, you know, now it's not something that we can read and say, oh, that's not me, no. You know, by Jesus' criteria, by John's criteria, if it's an attitude of the heart, and God knows the heart, which one of us could stand innocent before God today of what we consider a heinous act we would never commit, but yet we've committed it in our heart? It's as if Jesus is saying, Jesus is Nathan and we're David, and Jesus is saying to us, you are the man, you're the one, we're the ones. Forgiven Christians, we're the ones. It's an issue within our own heart. Murder was so significant that like the first five commands or words from God there at Sinai, murder was subject to capital punishment. The death penalty was commanded by God for those guilty of murder. So in Exodus 21, verses 12 through 14, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. There's no ambiguity in this, by the way. In fact, in verse 14, 
If, however, a man acts presumptuously towards his neighbor so as to kill him craftily, he's thought about it, he's intended it, we would call this first-degree murder, you are to take him even from my altar that he may die. Does that sound familiar? Do you remember what happens to Joab in 1 Kings 2? Joab, who was guilty of murder, was taken from the altar of God and was put to death under King Solomon's command. Leviticus 24, if a man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. You know, under the law, by the way, if an animal killed a human being, the animal was to be put to death as well. Anything that was shortening the life of someone else without cause, that person or that animal, in this case, was to forfeit its own life. Now, that's under the law. And you remember we've said that these these moral issues were always true. Even if they were never codified under the law of Moses, they were true. And you see this in Genesis 9. As soon as Noah and his family land in the ark, the flood's over, the waters are receding, the ark lands, and they're coming out. One of the very first things God says is God, not Noah, not man, enacts, commands, capital punishment for murder. Genesis 9, God says, Surely I will require your life blood. And remember in the Scriptures, blood is a symbol of life. Blood is a symbol of life. Surely I will require your life blood. From every beast I will require it. If a beast killed a person, the beast is killed. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. And God going there back to the fact that each human being on the earth is a divine image bearer. And God says you may not take the life of another person with impunity. God enacted the death penalty. This was not something that men thought up. Now, there's at least two reasons for the death penalty for murder. The first has to do with justice. We tend to be very fuzzy in our thinking, guys. Uh, we don't think well. I love uh, Ravi Zacharias' title of his program, I believe, is Let My People Think. We do not think critically or hard. We tend to be soft-headed. It's not a good thing. And what we do is we lead by emotion. And if it emotionally feels right to us, then that's, that's good, and God's like us, and God shares our emotion. It's totally uncritical, and we tend to be wrong headed because we're wrong-hearted. We need our mind to be reformed by God's Word. So justice is a big deal to God. And you know, none of us that sit here today who have our sins forgiven can think that God is not a God of justice because Jesus' death on the cross is a reminder that God is just. You and I cannot be forgiven if someone's lifeblood doesn't cover our guilt and shame. Paul says in Romans, God is just, and he's the justifier of the ungodly. Well, there's a problem. How can God be just and justify the ungodly? It sounds like an oxymoron. But he does it because Jesus, our substitute, his lifeblood was poured out for us. God is just, and the death penalty is just. It's about justice. Here's a text you don't hear very often related to death penalty discussions. And by the way, this discussion is alive and well today. It's in the State House this last week. Numbers 35, God speaking to Israel. And by the way, this is an issue. It's a moral issue. This this is discussed under the law, but this is true before the law, under the law, and after the law, this moral issue. God said to Israel, 
you shall not pollute the land in which you are. For blood, and this doesn't mean physically I cut myself and blood pours out. This means murder. This means the death of the innocent. Blood pollutes the land and no expiation, no covering, no justification can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it except by the blood of him who shed it. That's numbers. And God's describing a moral reality, a spiritual truth. Murder defiles the land. And it's not that the blood literally cries out, but it's as if the blood on the land, the fact of murder, cries out to God for justice. I'll mention the death penalty here in a a minute, but in in modern, current context, we sometimes think vengeance is a wrong thing, but vengeance is, is justice. And God is a God of justice. And so if you're a Christian in favor of the death penalty, people will say something like, where's your mercy? Where's your compassion? Christians should be merciful. We should be compassionate. But we serve a God who's just. And we're not free to throw justice under the bus on this or any other issue. God doesn't. He's not free to, and so neither are we. So God says murder unatoned for by the murderer capitulating their own life pollutes the land. It's spiritual and moral pollution on the land. Unrequited murder. Genesis 4.10, this is exactly what you see. God's words, Genesis 4. You remember when Cain rises up against his brother Abel and murders him? Do you remember God's words? The blood of your brother cries out to me from the ground. It, It cries for justice. Capital punishment is first and foremost about justice. And we have a really demented sense of justice generally. God is just. The death penalty is just. If you take another human being's life, you forfeit your own. That's the death penalty. That was God's requirement. When you move into the New Testament under Paul, you see the same thing in Romans 13. Paul there talking about the Christian's interaction and relationship with government. And so he talks about government there. And he says, rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. If you do what is evil, be afraid for it. This is government. Government does not bear the sword for nothing. And the sword is the power of death. And you can look up the Greek. This is about the power of death in every instance in which this occurs in the New Testament. And in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, it's the same word used there for death. The government has the power of death to punish those who do wrong. And in fact, it says, it's a servant of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Now, this is important. In Romans 12... Christians have been told to forgive others and to not take revenge. Christians, individuals are told, don't seek vengeance. That's not yours to seek. You move to chapter 13 and God says, it's not for the individual to take vengeance, it's for the government to take vengeance. 
And the government is my servant to bring about vengeance or justice against evildoers, murders included. So it's the government. Paul restates the same thing in Romans 13. The government has the power of death and is to use the death penalty when called for for some crimes, murder at least. If you go back into the law, you'll see if someone was caught and was convicted of theft, they were to repay what they stole with a penalty added. But if you took the life of another person, you can never restore the life. You can't pay that life back. And so God says, that is for, it will be a life for a life. If you take that life, you've forfeited your own. God considers the value of a human life so important that he required that if one person took away another person's life in murder, they would forfeit their own. Now, that's one issue, justice, related to the death penalty for murder, for breaking the sixth command. The other issue, though, is God is a God of life, and his commands are always for life. And even the death penalty, capital punishment, was also meant to preserve life. The death penalty was meant to preserve life. If you go back to Genesis 6 and look at the way God characterizes the world before he flooded it, and remember this for just a second, God killed every human being on the face of the earth in the flood, except Noah and his family. God has the right over our lives whether we define it as capital punishment or under God's judgment. God has the power of life and death over us. There's no question about that. But when God describes the world in the days right before the flood, before he wipes out the earth, and he defines several reasons why he brought the flood when he did, but the description he gives in Genesis 6 is that the world was filled with violence. God is a God of life. And God wants to promote and to preserve life. And just before Noah and crew get on the boat, the earth is filled with violence. And so as soon as they get off the boat, God means to preserve life. And he says, listen, Noah, this is the deal. I'm enacting the death penalty for murder because I mean to promote life. I want to preserve life. This isn't about taking life generally in this sense. It's about preserving life. God's after preserving life by limiting murder. Ecclesiastes 8.11 is an important verse. Uh, It's an important idea along this line as well. Not just related to murder, but related to crime and justice in general. Solomon there says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. You know, if you're a kid and, and uh, you want to do something mom and dad have said don't do, but they're not around and you think you might be able to get away, without, away with it without repercussions, your temptation might lead to action because you say, hey, I can do this, I can get away with it. But if you know the security cams are on or, or even if I think mom and dad aren't around, I can't get away with this, you squelch that temptation to do evil because you say, man, I'm, I'm not willing to go there, you know, whatever the penalty is. Well, that's what Ecclesiastes 8 talks about. In culture, in society, 
when those who do wrong are not brought to justice quickly, it says, others are incited not to squelch the temptation to do evil, whether it's murder or something else. And it runs its course instead. Just as an example, the average time in the United States right now, if a criminal has been found guilty of murder in the states that have the capital, capital punishment, the average time on death row is 12 years. It's 20 years in California. You cannot say this is swift justice. It's not, there's nothing swift about it. Um, this says if people know there's a severe repercussion, there's a penalty that you would like to avoid by not doing that thing. If they know that, Ecclesiastes 8 says, that will minimize death. The capital, capital punishment was meant, meant to minimize death. Uh, there have been in this country just over 15,000 executions by the state, capital punishment, about 15,000 executions since 1608, 400 years. We average more murders in one year right now than the total number of death sentences carried out in the last 400 years in this country. As I was thinking about teaching the 10 words, I've become aware of some things that I've seen around town, and bumper stickers were one of them. So why kill the killers to show that killing is wrong was one I read. And a couple weeks ago, justice is never advanced in taking of a human life. And you know, death, in any, any discussion, death is a big deal. It's an emotional deal. And it should be. There's a lot at stake. And these slogans have a certain emotional appeal, but what they lack is any biblical basis. This is, my view, fuzzy-headed, fuzzy logic that doesn't work in real life. And many Christians, by the way, many Christians are opposed to the death penalty because they think in being opposed to it they're actually advancing life. And I, I would argue they've got it exactly backwards. That God values life so highly that he says, if you murder someone else, you'll forfeit your own life. That squelches my desire to kill someone else. That is valuing life. Those opposed to the death penalty, slogans aside, biblically, this is clear that God enacted the death penalty. He instituted it and he's maintained it even under the new covenant. Now, <clears throat> having said that, let me say just as quickly that the way capital punishment works in this country and generally around the world is problematic. In, in the law, if you were a Jew under the law, capital punishment could not be invoked unless there were a minimum of two witnesses to the act. Okay? So if there wasn't collusion among other people, capital punishment could not be brought about unless two people minimum actually saw the thing committed. So under the law of Moses, you wouldn't accidentally execute someone for a crime they didn't commit. You know, unfortunately, I don't remember the last time that I read this, but if you read the paper much at all, you know, every once in a while you read this thing that this guy that was on death row has been exonerated by DNA evidence or some other evidence and has been released. And you're thinking, wow, this guy was going to be executed for a crime he didn't commit. Matter of fact, in the State House here in Topeka, just this last week, the Capitol Journal recorded this on Friday, 140 death row inmates in 26 states since 1973 
have been released because they've been exonerated by evidence that came up after the fact. You know, this is not justice. That's not justice if we're putting people on death row for crimes they haven't committed. That wouldn't have happened under the law. Also, depending on your race, your financial resources, and other vagaries of life, you may have a better or worse chance of justice, whether it's murder or something else in our justice system. So I want to be quick to add, biblically, the record is clear. Practically, how that gets worked out, that's problematic for sure. But we don't want to confuse the fact of what God said with the way we fail to get it right. We want to err on the side of life in that God loved life so much and wanted to preserve it that he said there's the severest of penalties if you take away someone else's life, a life that can never be restored. Now, how are we doing on this command in our day? We're refined culture, right? We're advanced. We've got great science, great medicine. Men on the moon, Hubble Space Telescope. You know, we know about quarks and quantum physics. We're a refined, modern group. So how are we doing with this sixth word, which seems like a minimum standard, right? Don't kill other people. Seems like an easy command not to break, at least in our actions, if not in our minds. So how are we doing? And I confess, guys, this is depressing, okay? But this is where we are. Just related to murder specifically, as I mentioned a minute ago, there are around 15,000 murders in the United States every year. And by the way, 15,000 this is lowering since 2006. 15,000 is a lot. But this is actually lower than it's been. Historically, it's worked up to about 2006. It's coming down since. Uh, over three quarters of a million murders since 1973 in the last 38 years. And just to give some perspective, that's six times the population of the city of Topeka. That would be like every man, woman, boy, and child in the city of Topeka being murdered six times over in the last four decades. That's a lot of murder. How are we doing on keeping the sixth command? Murder, very specifically, very narrowly, not very good. Let me expand this. <clears throat> if you read commentaries on this, they'll tell you about the ten words, that the ten words not only speak very specifically to what's at hand, but they assume that the, the subsidiary issues are also covered. So, if I say, God says, you shall not murder, that, that generally means you, you shouldn't do wrong to someone else. You shouldn't hurt them. You shouldn't harm them. You know, or if we say something like, don't commit adultery, you know, Jesus raises this. We'll look at this next week, I believe. It's not just about the actions. It's about the thoughts. It's about the way we think about members of the opposite sex and someone else's spouse. So, it's more than the action itself. If we expand the umbrella of doing right by others and protecting and preserving life, then I want to move two shades out from murder and talk about abortion briefly. Historically, there's been a distinction made between murder and abortion. So, for instance, in the ancient cultures, it was normal that if you murdered someone else, the death penalty was common, but infanticide or abortion was common. In fact, it was just... Routinely practiced. There's a letter we've recovered from uh, Egypt. The guy's writing his, his wife. He's by business. He's in another place. And he just matter-of-factly says, and, Honey, when you, when you deliver, if it's a boy, keep it. And if it's a girl, uh, throw her away. And this was routine in the ancient world. Whether or not the unborn or the just born 
are protected by our legal codes or not, though, it's a given that a baby in the womb is a human being. The baby's a person. <clears throat> this command is about preserving life. This baby's a person. If we kill a person in the womb, we've killed a human being. <clears throat> Excuse me. Whether we call it murder or not, we've taken the life of a human being. It can never be restored. It can never be given back. Psalm 139.13, by the way, if you've thought about this at all, these verses are familiar. David says to God, you formed my inward parts. You wove me together in my mother's womb. David looks at God and says, you were the one putting me together in my mother's womb. David was known by God. God was at work in David's life before he was born. David was a person in the womb. Jeremiah 1.5, God speaking to his prophet Jeremiah, says, before I formed you in the womb, same thought as David's, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. Jeremiah, as a little guy inside his mother's tummy, was set apart by God to be God's prophet to Israel. In the womb. Last, Luke 1.15, when God spoke to Zechariah, the priest, about Elizabeth, his elderly wife, having a baby, the angel Gabriel said, this son that you're to call John, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit within the womb. God was talking about people, not choices, alive in their mother's womb. These were babies. These were human beings, whatever their legal status. In the U.S., this is current today, we abort, we kill about 1.2 million babies every year. Since Roe v. Wade made abortion legal in 1973, we've killed over 55 million babies in the United States. 55 million people have been killed in the United States in the last four decades. We talk about this oftentimes about the United States because it's where we live, and this is something that in some ways we can have impact over. We're not alone, and abortion is used as birth control in many parts of the world So here in the United States, annually, 1.2 million babies every year. Worldwide, about 42 million abortions every year. So we kill our culture, our advanced modern society around the world, we kill about 42 million people every year. Now, when you hear these numbers, they're sort of impressive on one hand, but we just lose our ability to grasp, don't we? One of the, I can't remember if it was Stalin or Lenin or Hitler, one death is a tragedy, but a million deaths, that's a statistic. So if there's not some way to put it in context, so here's my attempt at context for perspective. World War I, modern warfare, World War I, the war to end all wars, it was so devastating in Europe, saw the death of around 15 million people in Europe, World War I, the war to end all wars, so bad, so terrible. Modern warfare. 20 years later, World War II, basically involving literally the whole world, around 60 million deaths. Around 60 million deaths, World War II. Unbelievable war, right? Go back even further. How about the plague in Europe in the 1300s? 
In Europe, it was estimated, and these are very rough estimates, about 100 million people died. They figured a third of the population in Europe by the plague. That's a lot of people dead, right? So we voluntarily kill more babies around the world in just over four years than the plague and the two world wars combined. Now we look back and we say, what tragedies, World War II, World War I, the plague. Guys, four, four years and change, we kill that many people through abortion alone. Put another way, the four greatest killers in history, Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, and Mao, are estimated to have killed about 175 million people. And again, the same math works. In a little over four years, we kill that many children voluntarily. So this is huge. If we say God is a God of life, God wants to preserve life, how are we doing in our culture today? Guys, we're the most murderous culture in the history of the world. I don't know if you read this. This is just, this is in the last two weeks. You know, you wonder, how do you get there? How do we develop a mindset that allows death at this level, this frequency? There are two ethicists, and you have to use the term broadly here, two ethicists who are college professors in Australia. They are furthering the pro-infanticide arguments of the American professor Peter Singer by calling for so-called afterbirth abortion. Afterbirth abortions means we kill the children after they're born. It's infanticide. They simply don't want to use that term. So Alberto Ghibellini with Monash University and Francesca Minerva at the Center for Applied Philosophy and Public Ethics write that circumstances occurring after birth such that they, such that they would have justified abortion, what we call afterbirth abortion, should be permissible. The circumstances, the author state, where afterbirth abortion should be considered acceptable include instances where the newborn would be putting the well-being of the family at risk, whatever that means and whatever that looks like, even if it had the potential for an acceptable life, whatever that looks like. Ghibellini and Minerva say that merely being a human being is not enough to warrant a respect for a person's right to life. And of course, that's exactly what you saw in Germany and in Europe of World War II. It's why the Holocaust was a possibility, is because you say certain people aren't people. They're lower than humans. Last on this list, euthanasia. This doesn't get a lot of press in the United States. It's illegal in the United States. And fr in fact, frankly, it was hard to get statistics on this. Uh, the Netherlands has sort of led the way for the world in applying this. Um, euthanasia means a good death. That's um, debatable, but that's the word. Their statistics from 1991. So this is where we, we uh, kill ourselves or we have someone else kill us, okay, euthanasia. Of 8,681 euthanized patients, 5,981 were euthanized or killed either without the person's knowledge or without explicit consent. A good death. 70% either didn't, hadn't asked for it, didn't know it was coming. That sounds like breaking the Sixth Commandment to me. Don't murder, don't intentionally take away another person's life. About 70% of the Netherlands' initial euthanasia was without consent. 
uh, it's possible here in the States, Washington, Oregon, and Montana have physician aid in dying, and this is where the physician prepares a drug mix that will kill you, uh, but they let you push a button that turns on a pump, and so you, you actually kill yourself. You can do that in those states. Now, when they've interviewed people who ask to have their life ter- terminated early, the routine reason is they say, I don't want to be a burden on my family or my friends. I realize I'm dying. It's a drawn-out process, and I don't want to be a burden on other people. And you know, on one hand, I really appreciate that because it, it's thoughtful and they're thinking about others. But on the flip side, it's, it's really deficient thinking. I'm sure many of you, just like me, that you've attended relatives or friends who've died and they passed away from a lengthy illness or a disease or whatever. And you know, sometimes I think God gives such great times in those last days when there's nothing you can do for this person except be there for them. And God uses that. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't take the, that time away. You'd never throw that time away. It's precious. And so sometimes God wants us, you or me, to linger. And it's not always for our benefit. It might be for our family and friends to be there with us and simply to sit by us as we pass away or that we sit by someone else's side as they pass away. And the, the other thing about this is God's the one who knit us together He's the one ultimately who decides when we come and when we go. And so the thought that I say, I'm going to check out on this day, I'm disrespecting God. God is the one who has the power ultimately of life and death. And it's not up to us to say, I will die now. They will die now. Pope John Paul II had words that have been widely quoted for the last 11 years. He wrote this, A culture that no longer has a point of reference in God loses its soul and loses its way, becoming a culture of death. And like everything else, we tend to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And when we look really today, our culture, our world, our time, how are we doing at upholding life? lousy. We have raised death to an art and a routine and a practice in the modern age in the last 100 years. We're killing more people today than any time in history. We are just like the days of Noah when the earth was filled with violence. That's where we find ourselves again today. In the name of life, we refuse to follow God's command to execute murders. And I say this when it's clear, when it's unequivocal. And in the name of choice, we refuse to embrace children. We get this command wrong, coming and going. Think of this too. If murder pollutes the land, if the lack of justice when someone else, some image bearer in the image of God has been taken, if that unrequited murder pollutes the land, what does our nation look like to God today? And what does this world look like to God today? How much blood on the earth calls out to God today for justice? And by the way, when you read the book of Revelation, you'll see that souls in heaven that have no sinful nature left, no sinful impulse, they cry out to God for vengeance on their murderers. What kind of cry goes out from the earth today for justice? 
because of murder and the whole spirit of murder in general. I'm not going on over a list of benefits for keeping this command, and I'll try and keep this short. Uh, the first thing is you say, apply this. You know what? The first thing I say is just don't kill anybody today. Don't kill anybody. You're doing okay. It's a good day, honey. I didn't kill anyone. little levity. A success. Don't kill anyone. Literally keep the command. Don't kill anyone. That's a great start, right? Beyond that as Christians, though, we know, you know, Proverbs 4, watch over your heart with all diligence. From it flow the issues of life. Guys, are we forgiving others when they sin against us? Are we harboring guilt, hatred, unforgiveness? Are we harboring the things, the attitudes, the thoughts that lead to murder or simply are murder in our own mind, in our own soul? Remember, remember, as those forgiven in Christ, we're called to forgive others as we have been forgiven. So for us as Christians, not only don't murder, but hey, take it all the way back and say, harbor no unforgiveness, harbor no bitterness. Forgive quickly just as we've been forgiven. That's where we need to live. We can't get to murder because we're not supposed to be entertaining the thoughts. We've got to take our thoughts captive. And when we're tempted to be embittered against our spouse, our friends, our children, our parents, our neighbors, politicians, people who oppose us, who disagree with us, we are supposed to, as Christ followers, forgive. should never get to murder because we don't entertain the thoughts that lead to murder. Also, by the way, when you address a large group, it's almost a given that you're going to speak to someone who's done what you're talking about. Uh, killed someone, murdered someone, woman who's had an abortion. And so let me be very clear on this. Jesus died for the sins of the world, and he died for every one of them. And his blood is the atonement that covers over, rightly, justly covers over the guilt of our sin. If you've had an abortion, if you've done something wrong in the past that you know, God, I did wrong. We are cleansed by the blood of Christ. We can't make those things right in the past. That's, that's, we can't get there. But we can accept the forgiveness we have in Christ. And guys, if we've accepted that forgiveness, we've confessed our sins, He's faithful, He's just, He forgives us, and we're in right standing before Him, then we move on with life. Then we move on with life. We don't beat ourselves up with what we did yesterday. Guilt cannot help us Obey God. Love is the ultimate motivation to obey God. And so if we've done wrong, we confess that. We're forgiven by Christ's offering on our behalf, and we go on. The other thing is we can act on behalf of those who need help, those who are being led to death. You know, the world rightly indicted uh, Germany post-World War II. They said, listen, the extinction, genocide was being committed in your backyards literally and you said not a word. And what would people say of us living right now, a generation from now, or when we stand before the Lord, did we do just what was in our power for those who are being led to death? Those, who, those whose lives we can preserve, are we doing just what it, whatever it is that's within our power to preserve life? Proverbs 23, 11, and 12, deliver those who are being taken away to death, those who are staggering to slaughter, hold them back, Proverbs 31, 8 and 9, open your mouth for the, mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. We can at least, we can volunteer, we can give financially to places like 
Caring, caring Pregnancy Options, that's in Topeka. Lion and Lamb does, by the way, every month. CareNet was the mission group we prayed for this morning. We support them monthly. They're just pro-life. They're an option for gals to go to who are pregnant. They can get sonograms. They can say, here are options for life. These are good things. We should be involved in these. We can volunteer at those as well. Supporting legislation and legislators who advance life. This should be, in my mind, a no-brainer. You know, this is an election year. People have and will be asking for your vote. And I'd just like to pose this as a question. How can we as Christians who belong to the God of life, who are called to preserve life, vote, endorse, or give to candidates who don't support life? I I cannot find a rationale to vote for support or in any way help pro-abortion candidates. I can't get there biblically. Can't get there. Sometimes our choices are not what we'd like, voting for a candidate. But guys, government is there to defend life. If government and if politicians who are going to be in government aren't committed to defending life of the weakest, the unborn, why would we entrust them with any greater responsibility? And what do you say to the Lord when you stand before him and say, I voted for pro-death politicians to enact legislation over a culture, a society, or a government, and a people? By what rationale can we get there? I hope that doesn't feel heavy-handed, but take that home and think about it. And having said that, I know this is a really heavy message, so let me close on this note. Isn't it amazing? that the worst act of murder in the history of the world was the means whereby murder and murderous thoughts and acts were atoned for. So make no mistake, Jesus' crucifixion was the worst act of murder in the history of the world. Jesus was the only person who's ever walked the the earth who was entirely innocent. He was tempted all the ways we are, but without sin. And when he stood before the Jewish leaders, they concocted ways to indict him for a death penalty. And they indicted him in the end for telling the truth. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. Jesus is the only person who is ever truly innocent. The Jews then recruit the Romans to do the murderous deed for them. They don't have the the power of the death penalty. So they've got to recruit the Romans to do their dirty work for them. And what does Pilate do? After he condemns Jesus to death, what does he do? He washes his hand as if he can wash away the blood of the person he's just condemned to death. Does this sound familiar? So King David wants a guy murdered, but he doesn't want to murder himself, so what does he do? He has the Ammonites do his dirty work for him. And Jewish leaders, they they can't put Jesus to death. They just want to murder him. But, boy, they can get the Romans to do their dirty work for him. From earth, this is the worst act of murder ever on the face of the earth because it's the only truly innocent person who's ever been here. And yet, from heaven's perspective, what is it? It's the predetermined will of God by which all our murderous acts, all our sinful thoughts would all be atoned for, covered over by Jesus' death in our place on the cross. So if you say, I want to honor the spirit of the sixth command, don't murder, preserve life, how can I do that most effectively? 
Guys, at some level, it's really easy. We simply embrace the Lord of life personally. The one who overcame sin and death and whose blood atones for our blood guiltiness embrace the Lord of life and then present him to a world that's lost in violence and death. For you and I to present the gospel to others is the best pro-life thing we can do. We're introducing them to the prince of life, to the originator of life, to the one who ultimately holds all life and all death in his hands. So for you and I to embrace Christ and then to make him known to others, that is the best pro-life policy we can possibly have. And as other people buy into what God says, they become those who endorse life as well. So that's the best thing. To know Christ personally, proclaim him to others, is overcoming death by life, and is to keep this command in the best and highest ways possible. So take that home, chew on it, let's pray. Father, thank you that when we had no hope of life on our own, you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, to die in our place, Lord, to cover all our sin. Lord, to, in the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians, to overcome death by life. And Lord, would you help us in all the ways we can to be proponents for life. And would you help us, Lord, to communicate the reality of Jesus clearly to those around us? Would you help us personally to embrace him fully, to let the truth of his word, Lord, soak into us and affect the way we think? God, help us to put away everything that doesn't advance your work in our life and help the world see in us those who love you and who love life. In Jesus' name, amen.